Hey, everyone. Welcome to the latest episode of the Podcast Brunch Club podcast. Today, I chat with Galen Beebe, who is a writer and editor at the Bellow Collective, a publisher of podcast criticism, playlists, and interviews, and co-founder of ETC Gallery, a home for web, print, and experience-based narrative experiments. Her work has appeared in The Atlantic, Full Stop, and elsewhere. Galen curated the podcast playlist for us around the death penalty. You can find the episode lineup at podcastbrunchclub.com slash death penalty. Before we get into the playlist, a huge welcome to the new listeners. In case you don't know, PBC is like book club, but for podcasts. We're a global community of avid podcast listeners. You know you belong here if you start every other sentence with, so I heard on this podcast recently... Every month, one member chooses a theme and three to five podcast episodes that hit that theme. And at some point during the month, small groups meet in person all over the world to discuss the listening list. We have 30 chapters on five continents. To get a better sense of who we are and how you can participate, take a look around podcastbrunchclub.com. You can join the newsletter, join our Facebook group, and find out where we have in-person chapters. If we don't have a chapter where you live, start one. I can help you. This podcast is a way to bring a tiny bit of the conversation directly to your earbuds. As I mentioned, we're chatting about the podcast playlist centered around the death penalty. The talented Galen Beebe curated this podcast for us, and I'm so fortunate to have her as a guest on this episode of the PBC podcast. Galen participates in the podcast Brunch Club chapter in Boston, and I reached out to her to ask her to curate this podcast playlist for us because of her work with ETC Gallery which put together a narrative and web-based project on the death penalty. The project includes narratives and data art around various aspects of the death penalty. You can read about the first woman to be executed, see a data visualization project on last words, and view a map of geographic distribution of executions. Galen talks a bit more about the project during our discussion, but I would encourage everyone to take a look at the project yourself. I have a link to the project in the show notes for this episode, which you can find at podcastbrunchclub.com slash episode 10. The first episode in our podcast playlist is from the Long Haul podcast. The episode is entitled Death Row Guards. I don't know about that. I don't know. Everybody's going different directions. Anybody can't seven, eight, nine. People can't tell you. In this episode, guards from Louisiana's Angola prison and Alabama's Holman prison talk about their work on death row and the complicated reality of witnessing an execution in 1993 when the electric chair was the primary method. For some reason, I, that last day or two, I just, I kind of withdraw what's going on around me. I mean, I don't neglect my family or, or my duties at work, but you're not as a... Uh, I don't seem like I'm outgoing as much, I guess because I know what's fixing to happen. Next was the more perfect episode entitled Cruel and Unusual. Hey, I'm Jad Abumrad. This is uh, More Perfect, a mini-series that we're just getting going about some of the ideas and the cases that flow through the Supreme Court. The Eighth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution includes three very important words, cruel and unusual. This episode explores the lethal injection cocktail used in U.S. executions. Where do the drugs come from? Are they legal? And what is the most humane way of ending a person's life? Uh, um, An intravenous saline drip should be established, uh, uh, into which would be introduced an ultra-short-acting barbiturate, 
in combination with a chemical paralytic. Next up are two episodes from the Sky News Radio Special Reports podcast. We listened to episodes one and two of the Another Dead Man Walking series. I want everybody to know that I'm innocent. I've accompanied six human beings to execution. Richard would be the seventh. The man is unbelievably decent. I mean, he just really is. Hello, I'm Ian Woods, and you're listening to Another Dead Man Walking. In 1998, Richard Glossop was convicted of hiring someone to murder his boss. Although he insisted he had nothing to do with the crime, and everyone agreed that he did not actually commit the murder, Glossop was sentenced to death in Oklahoma. The first parts of this series follow Glossop's case to the Supreme Court. I believe that he definitely believes in his innocence. I mean, there's no sign that, you know, whether or not, you know, it's true or not. I mean, he's come to the point where he definitely believes it because he really doesn't show any of those signs of, you know, deception where you're shifting your eyes or not showing emotion or, or anything like that. He really comes off across as very genuine. We also listened to a Radio Diaries podcast episode entitled Willie McGee and the Traveling Electric Chair. You're listening to Radio Diaries. Hello? Nope, wrong button. There. Hello? Oh. In 1945, Willie McGee, a black man, was convicted of raping a white woman. McGee claimed that the sex was consensual, but an all-white jury found him guilty in three minutes. And in 1951, he was put to death in Mississippi's traveling electric chair. In this episode, McGee's granddaughter, Bridget McGee, travels to Mississippi to find out what really happened. Personally, in my lifetime, I was never aware of a white woman that had a consensual relationship with a black man. I'd never heard of it. I don't find it plausible at all. But there's no way to say this was the way it was because the parties that knew are deceased. There's no way to know. Period. Finally, Galen included a supplemental listening episode in case you have the time. The episode title is These Executions, and it comes from the Everything is Stories podcast. Hey, everyone. Garrett here from EIS. And before we get into this new episode... Michelle Lyons has witnessed over 270 executions since she began reporting for the Huntsville Item at age 22. The Huntsville Item is the newspaper in the town where Texas's executions are carried out. In this episode, Lyons shares her experience and her opinion on the role of the press in reporting on executions. Content warning, this episode contains more detailed descriptions of executions. In some cases, they were my age. In a few cases, they were younger than me. You, you just related to them just like a normal person. In some cases, I'd walk away going, you know, if this guy wasn't in prison, I think we'd be friends. The next thing you know, you know, you're visiting with them 10 feet from the execution chamber and they're about to die. So those are the episodes that Galen and I discuss. We took on four of the conversation starter questions that were included with the playlist. You can find the conversation starter questions along with the episode lineup at podcastbrunchclub.com slash death penalty. And you can find the show notes for this episode at podcastbrunchclub.com slash episode 10. So welcome to the Podcast Brunch Club podcast, Galen. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited about this. I am too. So tell us a little bit about yourself and a little about your project. I am a writer, a freelance writer, a multimedia artist, and I live in Boston right now. I'm a member of the Boston chapter of the Podcast Brunch Club. 
And one of the projects that I did that sparked me doing this playlist was called Knock at the Gates. And I did this project in 2014. It's a collaboration with two other people, Gabe Isman and John West. And it's an interactive online website that has information about the death penalty in the United States. And it really is incredible. So I do want to spend a little bit of time. I know this is not sort of normal for the podcast, but I do want to go through some of these because you kind of took you took some stories, you did a little bit of narrative, but you also did some breakdowns of data. And I encourage everybody to go and take a look at this project. If you go to etc-gallery.com and then click the knock at the gates, some of them are narrative, some of them are data breakdowns. And one of them is how we kill, one of them is a narrow practice. And One of them is last words, and that one was super intriguing to me. So why don't you tell us a little bit more about that data set? Sure. So we were interested in most common words used in the final statements um, of executed prisoners. And Texas posts all of their last statements online, so you can get them and you can kind of scrape through them for the most common used words. We did this project in 2014, so I have read every final statement from Texas that is online until the point that we did this project, which was intense. <laughs> I can't even imagine. That sounds that sounds intense. Yeah. So we picked when you look at the page, it it's a kind of a word bubble compilation. You see them on online various places. And it has the largest, most commonly used word as the largest bubble in the center and then going out in the less common and of course, we excluded words like the or uh or kind of commonly used words like that. And the most commonly used words are love, sorry, God, family, life, Lord, forgive, hope, people, Jesus, give, peace. And it goes on from there. And so I think what was what was really striking about this is that, you know, the words that you kind of think of, what would I want my final statement to be? It It has those words. I think, in it. And so if you click on any of the bubbles, you will see a representative final statement. And I chose those statements. And I chose them because they, you know, I thought they were representative of the statements that were given for that word because they worked well with the other statements because they were kind of a a beautiful representation for that word. This is dedicated to Texas, right? I mean, this is solely Mm -hmm. the Texas I'm looking at this and it like one of the words was hate and I went into it and I saw that it was like, I hold mm-hmm. no hate in my heart. Yeah, this is really compelling, though. I guess my next question for you is, I mean, you know, I saw this project and that's why I reached out to you and asked you if you wanted to curate a podcast playlist for us. But why? Um, what what was the reasoning behind choosing to look at the death penalty in the first place back in 2014? Well, we started this project soon after Clayton Lockett's botched execution, and he was executed in Oklahoma in 2014. And there were a few of these really gruesome um, executions, and his was one of them where he took 43 minutes. He took 43 minutes to die. And I don't know where it was in the kind of the national conversation about the death penalty, but it was when I started um, and John, who's my partner, started really seeing and thinking more about the drugs that are used in executions, where they're coming from, if they're legal, if they're kind of everything that's talked about in the uh, the more perfect episode. And 
that so that was a really high profile project. We'd recently done a very unrelated project called Kiss List, which maps my first kisses with everyone I've ever kissed. But <laughs> so while completely different topic, <laughs> it's a little more fun. <laughs> yeah, a little more fun. Um, but it, it uses a similar process of data visualization. And so we were looking for another project, and this was something that we both felt passionately about. And we reached out to Gabe Isman, who's our friend who now works at the Marshall Project, um, which is a criminal justice-focused publication. And that's that's kind of how we started doing it. Congratulations and good work, because you did a fantastic job on this. Um, and, you know, congratulations to your partners as well. That's amazing. Okay, so why don't we launch into the conversation starter questions that we are going to focus on you and I chatted, and we came up with four questions, but two of them are kind of going to lump into one big question. So the first one is number four and number nine on the conversation starter list, and everybody can find the playlist and the conversation starters on podcastbrunchclub.com slash death penalty. Um, so number four reads, many who argue for the death penalty claim that execution is a fair punishment for the crimes committed. But Richard Glossop and Willie McGee both insisted they were innocent. Do you think it's possible to be certain that innocent people aren't executed? And number nine is the current legal arguments around the death penalty in the United States largely focus on the means of execution rather than the legality of ending a person's life. Do you think this is the right focus? If not, why? Yeah, so I thought this was an interesting question because... People in some of the shows that we listen to, I think in these executions and in uh, the prison guard, death row guards um, from long haul, and maybe even in more perfect, people sort of say, well, these people deserve it, right? It's justice. They, they did something and that's why this is happening. But certain people who are on death row insist that they are innocent and that you know, it's not fair punishment. And and for Richard Glossop, everybody agreed, the jury, the judge, you know, everyone agreed that he did not actually commit this crime. And the person who actually committed the crime did not get the death penalty. So whether or not he did take out the hit on his boss, everyone agrees that he is innocent of the, of the actual murder. So I think it's not possible to know. And so according to the Death Penalty Information Center, which is by the way, where we got all of the data for um, the Knock at the Gates project, and it's a great website. Since the death penalty was reinstated in the 70s, 159 people on death row have been exonerated. And a famous case of someone who was really likely innocent and was executed was Cameron Todd Willingham, who was executed in 2004 for allegedly murdering his children by arson. After you're executed, like, it's a lot harder to prove innocence, in part because people are trying to focus on actually, you know, saving people's lives instead of exonerating those who have already been killed. But he, the scientific experts have discredited the science that was used to convict him. Um, there's a great New Yorker article about this that was published in 2009, and it's sort of a case that's gotten a lot of press. Yeah, so, you know, I, I think that, that the fact that people who are on death row are exonerated, people 
who are executed, maybe later exonerated or likely proved innocent given science or witnesses recanting kind of is evidence of this. And one more example, in 2000, George Ryan, who was governor of Illinois at the time, suspended the death penalty, even though he supported it. And this is quoting from that New Yorker article I mentioned. He said he could no longer support a system that's come so close to the ultimate nightmare, the state's taking of innocent life. So I think if a person supports the death penalty but can't stand the idea of killing someone who's innocent, that seems like a pretty extreme price to pay when there are people who are exonerated of the crimes that they're paying for with their lives. Right. Well, okay, let me ask you a hypothetical. Let's just say there's some sort of like miraculous way to know whether somebody is or is not innocent. You could completely, completely remove doubt. How would you feel? Would you feel okay with the death penalty or would there be like another issue that would nag at you? I still wouldn't be okay with it. I mean, I'm against the death penalty. (laughs) I feel like that's obvious, but uh, I'm against the death penalty in all cases. Even people believe in the death penalty agree it's okay for certain crimes, but not others. But what are those crimes? You know, where's the threshold? Is there a threshold of how old you have to be? And they talked about this in the... um, these executions episode that she witnessed either witnessed the death or was at the prison working at the prison when someone who committed their crime as a juvenile was executed. And so it's only really recently that that's been illegal, right? So I think there are just like all these cutoffs and all these lines, you know, even if you know for sure that somebody is guilty. Right. I'm with you on you know, I don't think that there's any way to know whether or not somebody is innocent. And I think that alone is reason enough not to execute people. Because if you're running the risk of potentially executing an innocent person, I agree, it's too high of a risk. But I guess I start getting a little bit less sure if I remove that question from the, the equation. I think justice is necessary. I think there's an element of justice I do think that the death penalty seems to be doled out very willy-nilly. Murder for hire, like you said, with Richard Glossop, the guy who actually did the killing, not put on death row, and Richard Glossop, who hired him, was. So I think it, it just doesn't seem to be like super fair in how it is administered. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I know a lot of people argue about financial costs, you know, that keeping a prisoner in prison for life is expensive. But then I've heard the opposite is true, that actually all appeals that death row inmates go through in order to, you know, get the sentence commuted is more expensive. Um, But yeah, I mean, I, I guess for me, it's really just the uncertainty about whether or not the person is innocent that makes me not think it's right. I also don't Really, I don't know how you morally argue that an individual cannot murder somebody else, but a state can or a government can. I think that's kind of a tricky uh, double standard. So, okay, the next question is number five. Are you comfortable with some means of executing people, but not others? Which ones and why do you think that is? I feel like if you're against the death penalty, then I think most people would just say I'm not okay with any means of executing people. But I don't know. You tell me. Well, I am not okay with any means of executing people, but I do have an answer to this. And first I'll say, you know, I, I chose this question. I think this is interesting because 
each means of execution that we choose in this country has been chosen because it's supposedly more humane. So electrocution was considered more humane than hanging. Lethal injection is considered more humane than hanging and the gas chamber and firing squad and, you know, all of those electrocution. And so there's this question of like, how do you have both sides, right? How do you have a humane death, but also kill somebody? I'm, as I said, against all forms of execution, but I think I'm more uncomfortable with certain methods, either because of botched executions, for example, with lethal injection and with um, electrocution, or because of historical precedent and botched executions, like with hanging. And I'm, I'm actually least opposed to the firing squad, in part because I think it's more difficult to botch it. You know, unless you thought someone's heart was on the left side, but their heart was on the right side, right? I mean, most people's hearts are on the left, but some are on the right. But, you know, I think, yeah, I think it it in, is probably the most humane. I don't know enough about nitrogen gas to really have an opinion about that. But I also think that that this, like, question of having a more humane death is in a certain way about having a, a less gruesome death. And this came up in, in More Perfect, right, that there's the... Uh, the three drug cocktail for lethal injections that starts with a drug that paralyzes you. I can't remember which comes first now. No, anesthetizes, paralyzes, and then stops your heart. And that paralyzing is just for the people watching, right? It's not actually about having a more humane death. And I think that like that indicates a level of discomfort with the system. And if we're that uncomfortable with the system, then that makes me wonder why we're doing it. And there was a great quote in that episode from a New York law professor who said, if we cannot face what we're doing and cannot acknowledge it, then we shouldn't do it. I think it was more perfect. The woman was saying the three drugs. And that really struck me, too. She I think her words were something like there is no purpose of the second drug. There's no biological purpose for the second drug. The second drug is for the people witnessing it. And I was like, whoa, that feels hard. That's just hard to swallow. And I do remember. And this it was a Radiolab episode from a long time ago, but about how, I think it was Radiolab, about how anesthetics actually don't work on some strangely high portion of the population. I forget what exactly it is, but when I heard the percentage, I was shocked. You know, that, that it essentially, you're basically locked in. So you're completely feeling everything, but you cannot react. You can't blink. All of the the signals that might be coming off of your you know heart and your pulse and all that, they seem like you're anesthetized. So nobody ever would know because you can't say anything. You can't do anything. And this this happens during surgery. And I actually have a friend who it happened to her at one point. They you know woke her up and she was like, I could feel everything. So I mean, I guess you don't you know you don't know that. And then they die. So obviously they can't tell you that they felt everything. So it's hard to know, even with, I agree with you, like firing squad seems so much more just quick and direct. But again, you just don't know even for a split second if they're experiencing pain. It sounds like, first off, the radio lab, I'm not positive, but it sounds like it might be the black box episode because I know they talk about anesthesia in that episode. But I mean, yeah, I think that that this is there is there a way to kill somebody and have them not feel any pain? Is that possible? But it was interesting 
how the justice on the Supreme Court, when I think they were looking at Richard Glossop's appeal, it went to the Supreme Mm -hmm. Court. And he was basically saying, you know, we know that there is a humane way of killing somebody. And I think his point was that, you know, lethal injection is that way. But I mean, I would disagree with that. But his point was, we know that this is a way to humanely kill somebody. But there's like this guerrilla war happening on the death penalty by by people like the woman that they were featuring kind of going behind the scenes getting these drug companies to pull the drug and so then all of a sudden there's this drug shortage and states are left to ask neighboring states to borrow those drugs and that's what prompted was it Oregon or Utah to do the the firing squad it's Utah the firing squad, I will say, is on the books. All of these states that have lethal injection as their primary method, a lot of them have backup methods so that if they're, if lethal injection is not available or cannot be administered in a constitutional way, which, you know, question mark about that one, there are these alternate methods, which I find interesting when people say, you know, this is barbaric, this is blah, blah, blah. And it's like, well... Technically, if we can't do X, Y, and Z, like electrocution is still on there on the books. Right. Although they don't necessarily have a method. I wonder, do you know, are there any states that use the electric chair as the primary? Um, Let's see. So I'm on the death penalty information site and it says South Carolina. It says prisoners can choose between lethal injection and electrocution, but I think that lethal injection is their primary method. Are there other states where you can choose? So in Utah... They brought back the firing squad in 2015. The last person to be executed by firing squad was in 2010, but that's because he was sentenced before it was banned in 2004. He had a choice and he chose firing squad. Oh, I see. Okay. The last person to be hanged has an interesting story. So Billy Bailey. Billy Bailey was the last person to be hanged and he was hanged in Delaware So they had gallows, but they hadn't performed a hanging in 50 years and like basically got somebody to come in from, I think, Washington State and like teach them how to hang somebody properly. Oh, my God. And so there are states like that where they like it might still be on the books, but I'm not sure if if states really have electric chairs or if they have gallows, you know, so even if it's on the books, they might not have like a way to actually perform the execution. It seems like. Wow, the electric chair seems to be pretty antiquated. I mean, it seems kind of a a little bit like a no-brainer that that is cruel and unusual. If anybody's ever gotten shocked by accidentally sticking their finger in a socket or something, then I think that's proof enough that it's probably not painless. Right. And people, there have been botched executions by electrocution where people's heads are on fire. Oh, my God. Yeah. Like, talk about gruesome. Yeah. Okay, so let's move on to question number seven. What do you think the role of the media is in covering executions and how much access should the media have? Yeah, so this came up in several of the episodes, including these executions and the Willie McGee and the traveling electric chair and another dead man walking. And I think it's a really fine line. So like in Willie McGee, the execution was broadcast live on radio And they specifically said in the radio broadcast, we're not trying to sensationalize this, but it was reminiscent to me of public lynchings. And I think if that kind of live broadcasting were to happen now, there's, I mean, I guess it's possible it'd be audio only, just given the laws around media inside of prisons in general. 
So I don't think that executions should be broadcast in, in any way, but I do think that it's really important for the media to be there and especially for the media to report on the death penalty in general. You know, I thought that was an interesting place in these executions where this woman who was reporting for the media on prisons then went to work in the prison and then coming from the media side, she understood the importance of that and other prison officials didn't. But I think, again, this goes back to the idea of if we cannot face what we're doing it and cannot acknowledge it, then we shouldn't do it. If you're not willing to share with the constituents, right, who are the ones who will pressure their lawmakers if they don't think that this is fair, if they think that this is cruel and unusual, if they think that this is, you know, not something that they want their government doing to other citizens, But if the media is cut off, then the people are cut off. Yeah. I mean, I think that there's a huge role for the media in covering executions. And it's the same reason that the media should cover almost everything. It's a bit of a check and balance. You need to know what's going on if you're going to have an opinion about it. Just like you said, how are we as constituents supposed to come to any conclusions about whether any specific method is cruel and unusual if we are never given the story of what actually happens. I'm not I'm not saying broadcast it, but reporting on it. You know, I would want to know if somebody's head caught on fire when they were being executed. You know, you can argue that one method over another is cruel and unusual and get that removed, but that's not going to stop executions. There's a larger question at hand, I think. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, we covered all of the questions that we wanted to cover. The one thing I wanted to kind of talk about, it's not necessarily covered in the questions, but I thought was really interesting was the way that they did the firing squad in Utah mm-hmm. and how they took volunteers, citizen volunteers to be on the firing squad and how they gave one blank and they didn't let anybody know who had the blank. And I guess the purpose of that is to so that everybody could kind of say, well, maybe I wasn't the person who killed that person. That seemed like a whole other level to me that all of a sudden they were getting citizens involved in executions. It just, I don't know, it seemed really strange to me. I mean, I think, again, this is obviously the quote that struck me the most. If we cannot face what we're doing and cannot acknowledge it, then we shouldn't do it. And I think it was someone at the prison maybe who said they have a surplus of volunteers because people feel like this is their duty. And the other person who said that nobody should have a blank. The blank is, I think, sort of the firing squad's equivalent of the paralytic. And it's just there for the person witnessing or the person doing the act to be able to have an out and not acknowledge the full extent of of what is happening. Right. And your point is, if you can't acknowledge the full extent of what is happening, then why are you doing it to begin with? Mm -hmm. All right. Well, I think that brings us to the end of our regular session. But I do always have my my last little question of what is your favorite podcast you're listening to right now? that maybe people haven't heard a lot about and what is a good episode to start with? Okay, so I have a couple answers. One is the Seeing White series of Seen on Radio, which is not still happening. It it finished uh, about a month ago, I think. 
But it's an amazing multi-part, maybe 13-part series about whiteness and what whiteness means and whiteness in America. And uh, I think, you know, it's a it's amazing storytelling. It's really effective and affecting audio. And, you know, it's an important thing to be talking about race and especially the construction of race and especially the construction of whiteness. Another one is called Mashup Americans, and it's a show that's about bicultural people, multicultural people, multiracial people, multilingual people, um, and it has interviews and stories. And the one that I started with had Jonathan Minhevar from This American Life and Hillary Frank from The Longest Shortest Time talking about their Mashup American life. Um, they're married. We actually featured mashup Americans in the October playlist for stereotypes and pop culture. We included the one about Alan Yang from Master of None. Oh, cool. Yeah. So our audience might be somewhat familiar with mashup Americans, but it's it's always good to have another go-to episode. Well, I've got another one I can recommend. <laughs> okay, go for it. Um, so I also really loved The Turnaround with Jesse Thorne, where he interviews interviewers about interviewing. And he interviews, you know, Ira Glass, Anna Sale, um, Brooke Gladstone, Jerry Springer, uh, just a ton of people about it, – it, it's like so many great podcasts. It's about the thing it says it's about, which in this case is interviewing, but it's also about so much more. And so – each episode sort of ends up being about, you know, the ethics of editing or about how to keep going when you're a new producer and you don't know what you're doing or about the Jerry Springer one was really interesting because he had this whole political career that I didn't know about and keeps the show at a distance. Yeah, I was very surprised by his approach to it. So that was really interesting. Is that the one you'd recommend to start with? The one with Jerry Springer? Um, I would really, I, my favorite one was the one with Brooke Gladstone. Um, and I think for anybody who makes, who does any sort of, you know, nonfiction work, she had a really interesting approach to narrative and to interviewing, sort of narrative within interviewing and also to editing. And I think ethics, journalistic ethics is a sort of a big conversation right now. And, and so it was interesting to hear her approach to editing and to retaping and and to cutting and so i recommend starting with that one okay i will make a note of it and put it in the show notes you can find the show notes at podcast brunch club slash episode 10 thank you so much for joining us galen um i'm excited to keep an eye on what you're doing next if you want to give us a little sneak preview i'd love it cool well we don't have anything in the works right now um but mostly i mean mostly you can find me at the bellow collective and hopefully we'll have some we've always got projects in the back of our minds at etc gallery so <laughs> hopefully one of those will be formulating soon awesome i hope uh you guys have a great discussion at your podcast brunch club meeting in boston awesome thanks so much for having me You've been listening to the Podcast Brunch Club podcast, presented by Adela Mizrachi in Chicago, USA, and produced by Emily Knight in Bristol, UK. This week, the guest was Galen Beebe from the Boston Brunch Club chapter. 
All our music is from the Free Music Archive under a Creative Commons license. This track is Degradation by Poddington Bear. <laughs>